Welcome to Climate Plus, a DevX podcast. I'm Michael Igo, senior reporter at DevX. Every year, usually around this time, the world turns its attention to climate change and what we're doing or not doing about it. At the UN Climate Conference, or COP, negotiators get deep into the weeds on every aspect of the climate crisis. This year, it's happening in Dubai. To help make sense of this complex, critical moment, we're bringing you conversations with leading climate thinkers, activists, and experts, and asking them, can COP28 deliver? We are the ones who have least contributed to the problem of climate change, but we are the ones who suffer from the worst impacts, because many of us live in very fragile ecosystems. There are not many groups with more at stake in the climate crisis than indigenous peoples. They often live in places that are vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, or that might supply the raw materials of a renewable revolution. They've also built centuries of knowledge in resource management and offer some of the most promising approaches to conservation that can be tapped at a larger scale. And yet, indigenous peoples are often not at the table when decisions get made about the places they've stewarded. Sometimes their existence is even ignored or erased, or worse, they are persecuted. That's what happened to Victoria Tauli Corpus, a former United Nations Special Rapporteur for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, whose activism landed her on Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte's list of suspected terrorists. It hasn't stopped her from pursuing climate justice. In this episode of Climate Plus, my colleague Naomi Mihara, who edits this podcast, stepped in front of the microphone to speak with Victoria Tauli Corpus about where that fight goes from here. Here's their conversation. Vicky, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you here on the DevX Climate Plus podcast. First of all, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about um, how the situation currently is for environmental defenders in the Philippines. I know that you yourself were were targeted in 2018 by the Duterte administration um, and you were put onto the terrorist watch list. Since then, you're, you've been taken off that list and there's obviously been a change of, of government. But have yeah. things improved at all for the rights and safety of environmental defenders in the Philippines since then? Well, n- no, not really. You know, I, I, the reason why I was uh, withdrawn was because I helped initiate a global campaign to criticize this. And, and with all the responses, the government was sort of forced to withdraw the list. But now they are still going, I, I, doing that. You know, we have this anti-terrorism council, which identifies whom they would like to tag as terrorists. And uh, when they do that, then they publish their names. So, so for instance, my the latest list that we have, we, I have a brother who is included in that list. He is connected with the Cordillera People's Alliance, which is a regional network of organizations in the Cordillera in our region. 
no and in fact he was uh just before that he was uh, he was even abducted by an by armed men and we had to really mobilize uh i had to call up my all my contacts that i have in the uh, military and uh, uh, intelligence offices and finally he was released after 24 hours but you know that's the kind of reality that uh, we face and uh, and it's not abating at all but that's not unique in the Philippines, you know. I, I have, having been a special rapporteur, uh, I made a full uh, thematic report on this, and and I've seen this happening also in Latin America, you no, know, and even in other uh, parts of the world. So so it's something I know for as long as the indigenous peoples continue to assert to protect their lands and territories and resources, they are faced with these kinds of unjust. Uh, laws and policies that uh, falsely charge them and and put them in jail or even kill them. They are extrajudicially killed. So you've held several UN positions um, throughout your your life. I guess you must have been to many cops over the years. So I'm wondering, kind of how how important do you see these climate conferences really being? Um, do you do you see this as a as a very important gathering to be present at and are real changes actually achieved in terms of the rights of indigenous peoples and getting them involved in discussions and negotiations around climate change? Okay, it's important that we get involved with this uh, climate change processes because as I always say, you know, we are the ones who have least contributed to the problem of climate change, but we are the ones who suffer from the worst impacts. No, because many of us live in very fragile ecosystems, no, whether these are on the forest, uh, mountains, or low-lying islands, or the Arctic, or the deserts, uh, you know, like some of our brothers and sisters in Africa. So this is the situation that we face. And yet, uh, you know, the kind of support that we need in terms of political, technical, and financial support is really very minimal, no? We assert that actually we, because of the use of our traditional knowledge systems and our natural resource management systems, as well as our, as well as our customary governance, we are contributing uh, significantly in climate change mitigation and biodiversity conservation, no? So, so we are contributing a lot, but in many countries, our rights still continue to be uh, violated. You know that our identities are also denied, and uh, and of course, our rights to have control over our lands are also uh, uh, undermined. So, so we believe that by making sure that we are there in these processes, uh, we are able to talk about this, about the kinds of impacts that we are suffering from, as well as the contributions that we are providing, not just for ourselves, but for the society as um, as a whole and the earth as a whole. No, So, of course, when we participate together with other civil society organizations, at least we are able to put the importance of respecting human rights no when climate change adaptation and mitigation measures as well as loss and damage measures are being undertaken you know and also especially now with the discussions about transition to a low carbon economy and the green uh, economy these are uh, processes we want to be involved with because because we are also directly affected many of the minerals that are now being Used in these technologies, no, 
uh, whether this is renewable energy, are also being mined in our communities, lithium, cobalt, among others. No, so so the kind of uh, aggressive mining of these transitional transition minerals has directly affected us. Aside from that, when these uh, uh, renewable energy projects, for instance, are put into place, uh, the people are not also consulted. You know, we believe, of course, in the, the contributions of renewable energy in solving climate change problems. But if it's being put in our territories, then at the least we should be consulted, we should be informed, and our consent should be obtained. So those are some of the issues that we're trying to bring into that into the discussions and of course the other one is the need for us to have direct access to the finances that are being provided because as you know uh, uh there was in in glasgow there was a pledge that 1.7 billion is going to be directly accessed by indigenous peoples but uh the reality is that this is still going to intermediaries and not directly to the communities or the indigenous peoples who really need them badly. Climate Plus is supported by the World Bank. Back in October, World Bank President Ajay Banga called for a new vision for ending poverty on a livable planet with a focus on climate action. We cannot endure another period of emission-heavy growth. We must find a way to finance a different world where our climate is protected, where pandemics are manageable, if not preventable, where food is abundant and fragility and poverty are defeated. We do not suffer from a shortage of solutions. We're just paralyzed by a persistent lack of courage to pursue them. The good news is that we have solutions like these within reach and resources at our disposal to scale them. To learn more about efforts to end poverty on a livable planet, search for the World Bank Group at COP28 or click the link in the show notes. You bring up some really um, important points there about the climate justice kind of angle and especially of the yeah. renewable transition and the resources that will be necessary for that, the, the ways that those are obtained. There need to be safeguards in place, right? And do you think that those calls are being listened to when you bring these issues to conferences like COP? Well, uh, yeah, uh, I, there, of course, there are uh, sometimes they are really there in the documents, uh, but the bigger task is to really get both the national governments and the global uh, community to implement this. No, for instance, we would like to see more nationally determined contributions of the on the climate change to reflect that indigenous peoples have been participating in creating these uh, national plans. No, and that the rights of indigenous peoples uh, in relation to the, the lands, their lands and territories are in relation to their knowledge. And uh, of course, the addressing the impacts are also being addressed. No, so there's still a long way to go as far as uh, getting this effectively implemented. And that's precisely why we are also raising the awareness of indigenous people. So they will start demanding no from both the local government up to the national and the global that uh, these kinds of uh, decisions 
be implemented in 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 the concrete you know because uh, uh they will agree i mean as we all know i mean even this international human rights conventions all of them ratified this but uh, uh still continuing violations of human rights are there no so so uh what that tells us is that there is no end to continuous mobilization you know and awareness raising and uh, uh, sustained advocacy, no, to the decision on uh, on, on the decision makers, so that uh, uh, these kinds of decisions will really redound to the benefit of indigenous peoples. And moving on to climate finance, you just mentioned um, about this pledge that was made two years ago mm-hmm. at COP twenty six, one point seven billion dollars for support for the tenure rights and forest Mm -hmm. guardianship of Mm -hmm. indigenous peoples and local communities. But um, I know that a report released last year before COP27 showed that only 7% of that Mm -hmm. pledge is actually being channeled directly to um, indigenous peoples. I'm curious, what do you think is the roadblock? What needs to change? Mm -hmm. The reality is there's not really any uh, significant additional funds, no, from the side of governments. These are still their official development assistance, no, which of which you have to go through the eye of a needle to be able to access this, no, and uh, and therefore the bigger, uh, say, uh, environment or conservation organizations are the ones who are who are also getting and and they are shutting up themselves. To be the ones to get these resources, and then of course with the with the promise that they will deliver this to the communities. But this we still have to really see in in a significant happening in a significant way. What we have seen is that uh, there are more and more philanthropic organizations who are trying their best to contribute directly, so that it can this can be more easily accessed, and their requirements are not as tedious. No, as the multilateral or the bilateral sources. What is stopping funding from going to indigenous groups or communities directly? Well, uh, I think one of the obstacles that were identified is uh, is really the tedious processes. No, I mean when we have to apply for these funds, and of course one of the main requirement is that you have to be legally registered as an entity in your own country. And many indigenous peoples' organizations are not legally registered. In fact, in some countries, they are not even recognized by the governments. So that's really one big obstacle. And that's why we are also telling the donors that when you are providing money to the governments, at least ensure that there are also some requirements in terms of uh, recognizing the identities and the rights of indigenous peoples. That's why one of the demands is, can you make your... uh, your systems more flexible, no, and simple, so that uh, people can have a better chances of accessing your resources. And that's what we can say for uh, for some philanthropic organizations. They have done that. So we can cite examples of how uh, indigenous organizations have direct access to these funds because the the systems of philanthropic organizations are more flexible, no? They are not really so uh, uh, 
difficult. But of course, we also understand that bilateral donors have to account to their taxpayers. You know, they have systems that have been set in place for ages. So it's not also easy for them, you know, but we are still demanding that because I think they have to adapt to the realities of indigenous peoples. The world is facing a range of health threats, from an increase in disease outbreaks to the health impacts of climate change. I'm Janelle Ravelo, Senior Global Health Reporter for DevEx. Every Thursday, we bring you exclusive news and insights on how the health sector is finding solutions to these challenges in our free weekly newsletter, DevEx Checkup. Visit devex.com newsletters to subscribe. I think that you've been involved with the climate conferences and with these topics for, for many decades now. How would you evaluate the progress that has been made, really, in um, integrating Indigenous voices and representation into uh, into these discussions? There has been a significant uh, progress in in the sense that we are more visible. You know, there are some researches which are now showing that... Uh, that uh, say, for instance, 80% of the world's biodiversity are found in our territories, that uh, there are some researches which show that the, our uh, uh, customary ways of protecting our environment is contributing to, to mitigation. No? And uh, of course, uh, we have some mechanisms set up already in the, in the conventions like the local communities and indigenous peoples platform that is something that's new, that's a new formation in the climate change conference. And it allows for more active participation of indigenous peoples in the various uh, processes, whether in the adaptation committee or in the loss and damage uh, arena, etc. And of course, in the biodiversity convention, we have an article, the article 8J, on the, tra- on the importance, the contributions of traditional knowledge you know, of indigenous peoples and local communities to biodiversity conservation and sustainable use. You no, know? so, so in that sense, there are, that's the kind of progress that we see that at least we have some uh, spaces you know, that we, we occupy and uh, mechanisms which allow better participation you know, but uh, we still have to do much more in at the national levels, no? Because uh, uh, as we have seen, when we are uh, when we are tracking, for instance, the green climate funds, there are some projects submitted by governments to get money from there. But uh, in some cases, they will say there are no indigenous peoples when there are no. So, so we have to be constantly, we have set up a, a green climate fund tracker for indigenous peoples, which show what are these projects and uh, which of these projects will have direct uh, uh, impacts on indigenous peoples. No, just so, and then we inform the people at the country level that there is this on application, a project application that is there, and uh, and you have to be aware and you have to ask your government whether uh, about this project and uh, in assert that you should be included. You know when they are shaping or designing the programs in terms of how this will be implemented. You no, know? so so that's the kind of work that's needed, which is not easy. You no, know? because of course many of our indigenous. Uh, uh, counterparts, they are so busy trying to survive, 
uh, as, as we know, a big part of indigenous peoples are really in, uh, in situations of extreme poverty still. So the survival is uh, basic. And so it's not uh, that easy to continue, uh, you know, putting a lot of pressure on them to do these things. So we have to have additional resources to be able to at least uh, support people whom they can uh, free to help in the kind of advocacy work that's needed at the national level. No? So, so that's the kind of uh, cycle that we constantly engage with. And, uh, and we are quite, uh, we are happy in a way because many of our partners are now engaged actively in, uh, in entering into dialogues with the government agencies and even with the private sector. Okay, so so that sounds like you you're optimistic about about yeah. progress. Quite slow, but, <laughs> but at least it's moving. It's not as if we are stuck, no. So so uh, I'm always optimistic in that sense, no, because otherwise uh, uh, we won't be spending all our energies and you know our efforts in pushing for these kinds of uh, of uh, gains that we would like to see. And when you mentioned private sector, in what way is the private sector being engaged with this? Well, basically, it's really the 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 companies, the corporations. No, I, I mentioned earlier about the fact that mining of transition metals and minerals is happening. So we are also uh, helping our uh, indigenous partners to have the information if we are able to generate information that this is uh, happening or uh, and or to campaign against the the efforts of uh, such mining companies to open up indigenous territories no uh, so the other thing is of course in relation to uh, ensuring that they will not be displaced from their communities because we have cases now where where uh, for instance uh, in in Africa presently the Ogiek in Kenya who, who actually won a case not, not to be displaced. They are not being displaced in, in big numbers, no, uh, because the national uh, government has decided to 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 create, I mean, you know, to, to create national parks, so-called, and we want the the uh, Maasai and the other and the objects to be booted out from their traditional territories. So these are some of the the things that are happening, and that's the kind of uh, uh, engagement that we also have with the private sector. No, we do a campaign. We bring the issue to the Business and Human Rights Forum in the UN in Geneva. No, and of course we we have a signature, you know, a, a signature campaign so that we will get more people to to support, you know, the the demands of these indigenous peoples affected directly by such uh, operations. So it's both the the private corporations, but as well the investors, no, because now there are num, especially now with the so-called voluntary carbon market that that comes into the picture. There are now uh, ca carbon cowboys, uh, you know, loitering everywhere in many parts of the world for in, in indigenous territories, promising the money, no. But actually, it's still a very complicated and uh, complex process that uh, we don't believe that it. Uh, in, in the end, the indigenous peoples are going to benefit from this as, as it is right now. And so finally, if there was a sort of a concrete outcome, what mm. is it that you're hoping from this year's climate conference? 
Well, uh, as we have, uh, we're actually hoping for a lot of things, but one of the things that we are trying to to look more into is, for instance, the, the whole issue of loss and damage, you know, where they are talking about uh, uh, economic losses and as, as well as non-economic losses, you know, and, uh, and indigenous peoples are the ones who are saying that we both, we suffer from both because when, when the high the, the the sea levels rise and we have to get away from our territory, especially those in the low lying islands, then of course the culture, you know, our sovereignty and all other rights that we have will also be affected. And those are non-economic losses. Are you going? How are you going to deal with this? You know, will this mean that uh, that uh, you will be able to negotiate with other countries or other communities so so that we can have a place to to uh, to live in, you know, uh, are you going to contribute to say the recovery or rehabilitation of these places? If uh, if we want to still continue living in these places which were subjected to such uh, climate change disasters, no. So these are some of the issues that uh, we are uh, looking into, and of course they now agreed to have uh, finance for loss and damage, but it's going to be handled by the World Bank, you know, and we know what the record of the World Bank is as far as, uh, of course, the impacts on indigenous peoples, especially as the whole issue of debt still comes into the picture. You know? so, so, uh, so this is one area, but the other area is to really ensure that, you know, the, the whole uh, human rights approach, human rights-based approach will really filter into all the different arenas, the different decisions that are being made, no? Of course, direct access to finance is still an issue that to the arena and uh, inclusion, more better participation of indigenous peoples uh, at the various levels, no? So uh, this is what we still hope. I mean, we always have this sort of uh, agenda when we go and participate in the conference of parties. So we hope that some of the suggestions that we are going to present will also be supported by some states. You no, know, we have uh, like uh, friends of indigenous peoples, so like a number of states are supporting us, and we are trying to uh, increase the number of these people so that we will have better uh, chance of getting some of our proposals uh, accepted. Thank you so much for joining me. It was great to speak with you and I, I hope that COP28 brings some um, positive changes that, that you've been working for for a long time. Thank you so much, Vicky. Thanks for listening to Climate Plus. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it. And you can also leave us a rating or a review. We'll be publishing episodes twice a week in the lead up to, during, and after COP28. So make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. If you want to share some feedback on this episode or have questions you'd like answered, we'd love to hear from you. Drop me a message on X, formerly Twitter, at alterigo, or send an email to podcast at devx.com. Climate Plus is a podcast from DevX. Today's episode was produced and edited by Naomi Mehara. The series editor is Catherine Cheney. It's hosted by me, Michael Igoe.